Hello and welcome to Are You What You Do? This week I continue to ignore the rules of physics and we travel back in time to the final days before a lockdown was introduced in the UK. Here we are, uh, social distancing day five, day six, who knows? Uh, anyway, this is the first remotely recorded podcast episode that I'm attempting. How exciting. And it is very exciting. My guest, whom you've just heard, is Bradley Travis. Uh, what do you do, Bradley? Well, I run or am head of the education department at English Touring Opera, and I'm also an opera singer, and I'm also sometimes even a director. So um, lots of different things. But you started out as a singer. I did start out as a singer, yes. Exclusively exclusively a singer and now you're a swinger now i'm totally a swinger <laughs> how did it come about the the change i'm assuming it didn't come completely organically and you you actually made a decision and decided to change tack i i guess it is it was quite an interesting one because it sort of did come organically but not without a little bit of thinking before that the, I might want there to be a change. So I, as you know, but others might not know, I was um, an opera singer exclusively for four years, having done the full eight years at music college. And I was enjoy I enjoyed being an opera singer. I really did. But I didn't all the time enjoy the lifestyle of having really good contracts and then having a long time off or... You know, really didn't like auditions, didn't like feeling of bad auditions, at least. And, you know, some things happened in my life that I then made the decision that I needed to have more stability financially and that there wasn't an awful lot coming up in the singing diary. So it was interesting that I did this project for English Touring Opera called This Is My Bed. Which was a school's opera for exactly. children with special education needs. Yeah, so we were, we were workshopping where we sort of were creating the piece with young people with special needs. And working with this amazing guy called Tim Yeland, who uh, was actually my predecessor in the job at ETO. And I sort of started to think... This is where the really important work is happening. I, I thought, this is amazing, what Tim's doing and what we were doing with creating this piece with, with the young people. And so that was kind of in my mind. I was sort of starting to think, maybe I'll start watching out for those sort of jobs as and when they come up. And then Tim told me, actually, that he was leaving ETO. And mm -hmm. my initial thought was, oh, no, I'm... All that work that he was giving me, what am I going to do? You know, and, and that I was really, really enjoying the work. And then I sort of thought, hmm, maybe, you know, I'm pretty young, but relatively experienced in that area. Maybe that's something I could do. And so then when the job did come up, I applied for it and, and luckily got it. So that, that was the sort of not totally um, bumpy road, but the, the road towards this job now. This Is My Bed was the first education project that you'd ever done as a singer? Uh, it wasn't the absolute first. I'd done a project with Garsington called um, Silver Birch, which was a big community project. And was that as inspiring? Yeah, that was really inspiring. I had a really amazing, amazing time doing that. It was less about the creation of the piece and more about just performing with amazing young people and the piece was about uh, was someone and his brother in Iraq. There was ex-members of the military 
involved. It was a really amazing project to be a part of. And I guess that did sort of get me thinking about that sort of thing. But at the time, I was still trying to piece together a singing career. So you still get to sing a lot in the yeah. job that you do. But when you were thinking about uh, finding something with a bit more stability, was that always sort of a, a, a prerequisite that you would still have to keep singing? Or were you open to the possibility of abandoning singing altogether? Except, obviously, for fun. Do you know what? I don't really know. Because I I think I, at that time I still did want to carry on singing. But I was looking at more, you know, full-time jobs in... Chorus jobs? Yeah, well, learning on participation, but exactly. Chorus jobs. I was thinking, right, if a chorus job at Opera North comes up... I'm absolutely going for it, partly because I know that they have roles for their chorus or covers and whatever. But still, I think I would have applied at that stage for any full-time chorus job, because also at the time I didn't have any particular reason to be in a, a specific part of the country. And then it was part of my sort of process with ETO that I said to James Conway, I said that, you know, I would really love to carry on being a part of the seasons. And luckily that's been able to happen, you know, as, as a singer. So, For those who don't know, James Conway is the artistic director of English Touring Opera. Can you see yourself going back to singing exclusively now that you've had a year of doing all sorts of really important work? No, I, I, I do not see a world when I go back. Well, I, I just know there isn't a, a world when I'd go back to being a full-time singer. And the reasons for that are sort of numerous because I think part of it is... I wouldn't want to go back to the instability of freelancing and just being a singer. I, I did some quotation marks then, which no one will be able to see. <laughs> and other reasons are that actually when I started the job at ETO, it opened my mind up to work in so many creative ways that I'd not really allowed it to, probably since school. You know, that suddenly there were loads of things that popping around in my head and... Because I also have the opportunity to do things like direct the kids' shows, the breadth of stuff that I'm able to do is is really, really fun. And I, f I feel very, very lucky that I'm able to do so many things. But I, I don't see any world when I go back to full-time singing. And actually, much more likely is a sort of slowing down of how much singing stuff I do. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I almost feel like, you know... <laughs> That's on tape now. I know. You can't I take know. it back. Can't take it back. <laughs> we just started uh, what was going to be hopefully a lovely tour with English Touring Opera, where I had, and obviously we're recording this in isolation because of COVID-19, but I had a few nice solo things in the tour. The first time I've done relatively big solo singing for a while. Plus you went on for a massive cover. Yeah, I went on for a massive cover, and but I'd already been thinking, mm, this might be a really lovely tour to kind of be my last solo singing tour you know I might still do bits of chorus but then wind it down obviously if the opportunity comes up and it's something that James uh, wants me to do and I really wanted to do it then maybe I would you know but I, I, I do see myself more and more in the planning and directing sort of vein I think and now you have all the time in the world to plan your world domination. <laughs> yeah, yes, world domination is coming along very well. How is life in self-isolation? I mean, it, we haven't been going all that long, but surely it must have been a huge shock from being 
on tour planning your next brunch in a lovely venue <laughs> to suddenly being stuck at home and thinking, oh, how on earth are we going to continue bringing opera to people, especially younger people? It's been very, very surreal. The actual self-isolating is is fine so far, but we're not a very long way into it. We'll check back with Bradley in two weeks, see if he's still alive, if he's still sober. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was very, very surreal. And we were even in a school doing um, the latest opera for young people with special needs, uh, which is called The Extraordinary Adventures of You and Me. We were in a school just a few days ago doing that show and... You know, to say bye to people and sort of be like, see you sometime was really odd. We'd only got to tour to Snape. That's the only venue other than Hackney in London that, that we'd done. Even then, I didn't really believe how serious it was, I suppose, then, because people were saying this could be our last show. And I said, oh, we'll make it to pool next week, surely. And then, you know, obviously things developed very, very fast. I mean, I was on tour as well. and Yeah. We we did our last show, so we're recording this on a Friday. On Monday, I was still doing the last show of our scheduled tour of Madame Butterfly with Opera Up Close, and literally after our get-out, they shut the theatre until September. It's extraordinary, really, and not only were we touring, you know, we are touring Giulio Cesare and Così, but we were doing the John Passion with community choirs, a lot of them having, you know the really um, at-risk category of over-70s and... People with underlying conditions, exactly. all of that. Even that realisation of bringing people together was going to become really irresponsible. But it's the sort of project that ETO are all about and, you know, mm. and reaching out into the community. So that's been really hard on all of us at ETO to sort of come to terms with the fact that we're not going to be taking opera around the country. What we're trying to console ourselves with, I guess, is ideas of how we do continue in a digital way to uh, engage with people. You know, we'll try. And it's it, it particularly upsetting for me to not be able to take the opera um, for kids with special needs into those schools because, you know, they don't get much access to the sort of art that hopefully we'd be taking them and the interactive nature of the shows so that that's really hard but we're hoping that we'll be able to visit the schools that we didn't get to with the show you know when everything comes back comes to back to normal yeah do you think there are any silver linings to this though are arts organizations going to be dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century or or is everyone going to get a bit tired of, of watching opera singers perform in their bedrooms and living rooms? <laughs> is one of the silver linings the fact that people will be starved of live performance for quite a considerable amount of time? So yeah. maybe once this is all over, people will flock to the theatres and be like, oh my God, this is so much better than watching mm. it on my screen. I think yes to everything you just said, actually. I think that there is a silver lining that opera companies and arts organisations will be dragged a little bit, kicking and screaming, into a more digital age. It's certainly going to give us the time and the drive to to create more online content because I think it's something that nobody maybe does brilliantly at the moment. Some places do mm -hmm. it better than others. Uh, and it's going to be almost trial and error to see what, people engage with and what people really enjoy 
I think people will get fed up of opera singers popping up on their social media, being like, I'm just going to make you feel better by singing this song. And people are going to be like, I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> to, to be fair, like we might be, wish you wouldn't. Because of our, no, our particular social media bubble, we're maybe oversaturated That's true. With, with that kind of content. But I think audiences will really appreciate it if they do follow the, uh, the arts organisations online, I think that will give them some solace that art is still happening. But I do think when everything opens again, the theatres, hopefully the ones that survive, because we don't know whether they all will, I think there's going to be a boom in all live performance. And I do think that the usual online stuff might take a bit of a dip, because I think people will just want to get out there and see things in the flesh. Yeah, And also, like, gosh, pubs and bars are going to be crazy because people are really going to want to socialize well i think we'd you know we could spend a long time talking about coronavirus and its implications but uh, it's only been a week and well obviously a week of of total yeah close down of the mm. arts uh, and things will change as they do very quickly these days and this is not you know this is not a podcast about coronavirus no. so back to the important things you <laughs> me <laughs> okay so when i asked you what you do mm. uh, you gave your job title first mm -hmm. and then mentioned that you're also a singer yeah so is that how you identify now uh you're, yes. you're no longer a singer first I was actually a little bit calculated with the way I answered the question. I'll just explain that how I said is how I identify, but I still actually, when people ask me what I do, the first thing I say is opera singer. And then very quickly get on to, but I do, this is what I do a lot of the time as well. That might start to change, I don't know. I think the reason I do it is because the looking after ETO's education department job is quite a difficult one to explain very quickly. It sort of takes longer for me to say, you know, because my actual job title is associate artist and then in brackets, learning and participation. So that doesn't really tell people very much. So then, so I do... As long as you know what you're doing, I it's know, probably fine. I know, but if people are asking me what I do, and so I do say, you know, I commission and make operas for children and, you know, do all sorts of community things. So that's kind of how I explain it, but it is difficult, this whole idea of what you identify as, because I don't think I probably am an opera singer, first and foremost, anymore, but I still... Well, you trained as one, yeah. you know, it's been a huge, huge chunk of your life. Yeah, and I think that's probably... Well, and, and people quite like it when you say you're an opera singer, you know, it's quite... People find it quite interesting um, and quite fun, as long as they're not saying, yes, but what do you do for a proper for job? For a day job. Yeah. Which actually now, oh, but you now have, I have an answer. You have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's difficult to, to sort of pin down what we self-identify as, but mm. is it important to even try? I mean, when I sent you these questions, were you like, oh, it's so interesting to, to kind of sort this out in my head a bit and, and think about it? Or is it really unhelpful? No, um, I think it's quite interesting to think about. I think it's quite interesting. But I also thought something that I found quite, I guess frustrating is thinking about how music colleges train singers particularly I don't know I, I can't speak for instrumentalists because I think that it might be slightly different but I don't think that they prepare you for an actual career what is an actual career well I don't think they prepare you for the real a, world the real world and a realistic career I, I, I think that a lot of the training is geared towards you having an international 
opera singing career in the big houses or, you know, getting a fest contract in Germany. I think that that is what the training is geared towards. Yeah, so this is what they're showing because this is what their best or luckiest Mm. graduates go on to do. So, you know, you look at a prospectus and you're like, oh, well, you know, Bryn Terfel went to, to, to this particular college and look at him. So if I do everything that he did, yeah. um, I'll do the same. So so I do think that what would be amazing is if there was far more, uh, a far richer education, sort of, these are all the other amazing things you can also do. And these skills that we're giving you now will hopefully help you with what a lot of people call, you know, portfolio career. Playing devil's advocate, yeah. would that mean that we end up with uh, less driven and perhaps not as impressive singers because of that? No, because I think there would still be those who had, you know, a, a very blinkered view of what they wanted to do. It would be the same way that some singers didn't take song classes as seriously as others, you know, that they, they knew what they wanted to do or even, you know, acting or movement classes. <laughs> but maybe they should have paid attention to those ones. But yeah, I think I think it's some some will still have that real drive. And hopefully you'd have ones that would do both. You know, I know some, as, as I'm sure you do, some amazing singers who love to do any outreach work when they can. It would be hard to design a course that prepares you for everything, though. Yeah, I think you'd have to you'd have to kind of cherry pick what was most useful to teach people or and perhaps I mean baby steps at least at least tell people what the other options are. Yeah. Because opera singers the training that we get actually is pretty full of transferable skills. Yeah. And we have quite open minds and we pick stuff up relatively quickly Mm. so it's just sort of impressing on people that if this is not what you end up doing that doesn't mean that this has been time wasted that's actually a really a really good way of thinking about it actually because part of the problem is the lack of preparedness for what the possibilities are or what the reality might be so i think if it was in, in the nicest possible way sort of saying you might not all make it as this type of an opera singer, but actually these are all of the other things that you can do when you are an opera singer. And these are the sort of skills that you've been learning that can be transferred. So yeah, that's probably a good way of thinking of it. I heard something similar when I was at college. I went to a masterclass conducted by a soprano who shall remain nameless, but (laughs) uh, she's very famous and... (laughs) She started, this was not actually a masterclass at my college, it was at a different institution uh, that was at sort of perceived as a finishing school for singers, mm-hmm. for like really high achieving singers. So we went there to, to sort of hear the best of what's out there within yeah. a certain age bracket. And we all sat down in the audience for this masterclass and, and up came said soprano and she said, we're going to hear 10 singers and I, I feel like I should impress upon all you in the audience right now that most of them will not go on to have careers. <laughs> all right. Way to sell this. I mean, we haven't even heard anyone yet. That's and also, they were all sitting there on the stage, having worked with her for half a day. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Can I just say, she was proved wrong. Oh, well, that's you know, great. This was... This was seven years ago and uh, I'm pretty sure at least two or three of those people are are doing pretty well 
that's really hilarious. Yeah, that that's perhaps not the way to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> It's like uh, uh, inviting all the undergrads or like first year postgrads into a meeting and say, nearly all of you will fail. <laughs> I mean, it is a bit Hunger Games, basically. Yeah. Only, in every year, only one of you will graduate. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying all this. I loved music college. I had an absolutely wonderful time and... I guess it, it might have been nice to have a little bit of guidance in the way that I've suggested, but sometimes you really don't want to hear it. I had a director actually say to me mid-rehearsal process for one of the operas at the Royal College, he he said to me, Bradley, you're, you're, you're good, you're good, but what else do you do? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, what other skills have you got? Like, what uh, did you do a different degree for undergrad or, you know, what hobbies? And I was like, I sing i act i do these things and then he's like okay but you know you might not make it and I, at the time i was like how dare he say that to me but then he actually he said it in a very kind way at the time i can remember it mm. quite vividly so i know now knowing him a bit better i know that it wouldn't have been meant in a negative way he was genuinely asking what else do you do and just make sure you have that kernel of what might be possible in the future because it's hard out there and i've ne i've never interestingly never forgotten it i think probably because at the time it was a bit like does he not like my singing um, <laughs> but then afterwards it's become like a ah a memory of that and i've told a lot of younger singers than me just be not not to say to them that i'm not doing the thing that he did not saying what else do you do just just as an example that sometimes people will try and help and it might not seem like the nicest advice at the time but actually, it had a lot of uh, good meaning in it. We're talking about how could music college be better. It's very difficult to pitch this kind of thing because, mm. you know, they are there for a focused course mm. in one thing. Yeah. And, and they're striving for excellence. But I think step one is not making it personal. No. No, and just true. sort of throwing out broad information uh, that they can then maybe look back on when they hit a bump. Yeah. And many people hit a bump, unfortunately. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's part of the idea behind this podcast and same with the blog that I used to write, which I see this podcast being a continuation of. Yeah. I wish people talking about this was something that I could have found online 10 years ago. Yeah. It could have saved me a fair bit of grief, I mm. think. I would have probably been listening to it being like, ah, that's never going to be me. <laughs> Are you where you've thought you'd be? No, no, completely not. Uh, in, in, many, in many ways, I was planning on and thought my career trajectory would be small roles, bigger roles with a, sm a smallish company and then big roles at big, bigger companies. And that would continue you know that that was kind of as I was saying before that was kind of the route that you were expected to take and it's mm -hmm. one that I sort of thought I was potentially good enough to do that and you know maybe in another world I, I, I kind of would have been I think one of my problems with being an opera singer is that I really care too much about the acting <laughs> and <laughs> I cannot help myself singing sometimes in a way that is not perhaps technically brilliant, but makes a big impact for getting the message across. And that's mm. what, you know, but I came to the realization that that's what I wanted to do. And that's what made me happy. 
So I was going to continue singing like that, <laughs> even if it meant that I didn't necessarily get, you know, roles or contracts that I might have done if I was like, okay, Bradley, you must sing very technically well. I was like, ah, I want to have a nice time. So, <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then, that's exactly the sort of thing that you can do in kids shows. Like you're actively encouraged to do that. Um, so that yes so no it's not where I expected to be but I'm actually thrilled that I am because now I see a, a slightly different future trajectory that really excites me I look at people who have you know only done the singing thing and have been very successful at it and there's a level of, of maybe not envy but like respect for them <clears throat> but also I'm like how are you not bored? I know. Especially if you get caught into doing the same role over and over again. Although probably you're doing different productions. I'm sure there are very many ways yeah. of, of approaching the same thing. Well, you know, like when um, I did, it's, it's not a role that you do over and over again. But when we did Patience by Gilbert Sullivan for ETO and I was doing Bunthorn, there was a point in that tour I thought, I could do this for a year. You know, I could do this all the time. I was just having an absolute ball well it mm. might have got a bit tiring I, I think maybe the maybe it was that the length of time we did it for was the perfect storm you know because I could have definitely carried on for longer but what if it transferred to the West End and you had to do six of them a week well that I, yeah exactly I think at that t at the time I would have said great bring it on um but then I think perhaps that would have got tiresome and I would have definitely become Bunthorn, and that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been a good thing. I remember even when we were in, you know, pubs or bars after the shows, and people were like Bradley, you're standing like Bunthorn, or you're doing, you know, it was very. It was very flamboyantly aesthetic. It was very, very aesthetic. Yes. Uh, was Bunthorn the most fun you ever had on stage? Do you reckon? I think so. Yeah, it, it was certainly one of the highlights. Bunthorn as a whole thing, as a run. The rehearsal process, everything was, I think, the highlight of my singing career. But then I covered Figaro at Opera North, not long out of college, and went on for that. And that, as a, I think as an individual night, that was probably the most thrilling. Because it was mm. kind of, it was just so electric and, you know, that everyone was so on my side and... I kind of couldn't do wrong because it it was such an extraordinary circumstance. So that was a really, really great night and performance. And then actually going on for ETO recently as Guglielmo was was really, really fun. I think that there is something special, and I guess I've got a bit of a weird brain when it comes to this. There's something special about going on as a cover because you're kind of saving the day for everyone. Everyone is so supportive. But you're also, it's very exciting because you are flying by the seat of yeah. your pants. But I, I, I actually get a big kick out of trying to learn everything and do it just like the, the other person, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. all the details. So that, that really gives me a thrill. But I would say Bunthorn as a, as, a, as a whole thing was the top. But do you get, or do you think you will get the same kind of rush from what you're going to do more and more now? It's hard to know, and it's something that actually, when thinking about chatting, that I don't think you get the same rush. I, but I think the rush or the enjoyment is, is sort of more graded, and it goes over a longer period of time. Highlights since doing this job would definitely be directing Leica, 
you know, I just, I had a really great time. Um, and Like at the Space Dog, for those of you who don't know, is an opera for seven to 11 year olds written by Tim Yeland and Russell Hepplewhite. And Jan was and in And I this. was in it. Yeah. I was in it. And you directed me. Yeah. And so that sort of when we got to doing runs and dress runs of that, I, and when I came to see it in a school, schools, I, it was sort of like, yeah, this is really great. And this is something that we've we've done together. And it helps that the piece is so great. You know, it's, it's, such yes. a, it's such a brilliant piece. So that was a highlight. I think working with the Streetwise Opera groups on The Silver Lake, that, that was a highlight, you know, to be trusted to, to sort of be one of their main contacts with ETO and lead those workshops was, was really fun. And then also, but then I think the other stuff is more, it's more consistent. It's more sort of like... A steadily burning flame than a firework. Yeah, and you and I can feel really good about, you know, if someone takes the time to say, oh, thank you for your work on this. You've done a really great job. The other thing, like doing the, the workshops that we led um, in secondary schools, when we got the feedback from the teachers about those and said how much the kids enjoyed it, that, that gives you a rush. But it's not the same sort of adrenaline shot that it's like to go on stage. And that's why I don't know how I will react if I do less and less singing. Because I do still, there is an element of getting that rush. Even if you're in a chorus, you know, we've both been in choruses and loved it. You know, there's there's even mm. something just about being on stage, singing with people, making this great sound. It, it's really great. You know, some of those Silver Lake shows that we did were really thrilling. No, absolutely incredible. I even thought back to, to those Silver Lake nights and some of the bigger chorus stuff that I've done for for various um, summer festivals there is something about being in a group of people and making an enormous noise that it's a it's even a different kind of thrill than than singing solo because when you sing solo there's because you're so exposed there is a slight level of worry the adrenaline is different because you can fail it's a lot harder to collectively fail as a chorus. So you're sort of supported by everyone around you and that doesn't even enter your mind. No. Uh, so you're free to just really enjoy the visceral kind of physical experience of it. Yeah, um, exactly. The, uh, when I'm singing solo, I, you know, it's great when it's going well, mm. but sometimes when it's just not the right day and, and you're aiming to deliver your standard 75% of what you can actually mm. do, which you would never want to drop below. No. Um, but, but some of those days are hard, whereas yeah, if are you're, when you're part of a larger group, it's so much easier to, to, to ride that wave every night yeah. and, and enjoy it just as much. And it's a camaraderie thing of, I think it's partly because you're on tour and you definitely have the most fun when you're in a chorus because you're not worried about the next sort of show. Although getting up um, after a, a night out to do a, a 10 a.m. kids show is less than ideal. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I used to I used to get a lot of energy out of out of getting up and, and going into a school and walking out that first moment when you walk out and it's a full school hall yeah. of kids that really don't necessarily want to be there and yeah. you look out at them and you're like I'm going to get you I am going to capture your attention I am going to hold it yeah. and you are going to enjoy this yeah. whether you want to or not because yeah. some people will deliberately some kids will be you know they'll try to be cool by mm 
sort of assuming, well, this is going to be lame because it's opera. Yeah. And when you get them on side and they stop chattering away oh, that's and they're watching you and you're like, oh, yeah, yes. I got you. That, that's, uh, I always say to people, particularly those who've not done kids shows and are about to, I say, you will be amazed at how much energy this show is going to need. You know, you'll be amazed at how much you're going to have to give because they don't accept less than 80%, 90%, you know, of energy. They're the most demanding audience. Because they have no filter at all. They're not thinking, oh, I like this aria, or, oh, I I know this bit. Or they're not thinking, oh, I'll just have a snooze through this bit that is is (laughs) lovely music. Uh, they, they are like, come on then, show show me how you're going to keep my attention and how you're going to engage yeah. with me. Show me you deserve my attention. Yeah, and that's where that's where it's particularly special in those shows when there are maybe more subdued moments that don't have the energy. But if you've worked hard enough to capture their attention, and then there are those subdued moments and everything silent, and they land. Yes, and you're it's like, wonderful. oh my goodness, this is amazing. We've actually got them in the palm of our hand. And as much as those shows require energy, and you're absolutely right telling people who haven't done it before that they really need to step up their game, uh, they can't think that this is going to be an easy ride. But once once you invest in that first five minutes, and once the kids start being on side, the amount of energy that they give you in return, mm. you just fly through the rest of the show. Yeah. Going back to those slightly hungover days or those really early shows or the, the two shows in one day, three shows in one day, and yeah. that last show, you know, you've, you've, you've given it all. You've, mm. you've spent everything you had. But you know that if you, just, if you just give a little bit more, you'll get it all back. Yeah, you do. And then some. Yeah. Everyone should do education work. Everyone should do or education work. Or outreach work. Absolutely. That, should, that is the message of this podcast is that everybody should do outreach work because it's amazing. Send your CVs to Brad and Travis. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to do an accent because that would give away who it is. Uh, (laughs) Do you mean specifically about Korea? Because it's got a lot of advice I'd give 18-year-old Bradley. (laughs) We're trying to keep this useful. This is not just a therapy session. Was it not? This is not even. It's not even a therapy session. I was confused. I thought that's what it was. If your therapist asks you to record your sessions and then publishes them, uh, that's not okay. Uh, I'm not going to do the accent because that would give it away. Um. (laughs) Look at all these washouts trying to make the best of it in their heads. We're not not washouts now. In 10 years, I'll have a new podcast called The Watch. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I can't remember what I was going to say. Nothing interesting. Uh, Cut it. Cut Cut. it.